And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. In the gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's week two in our Lenten journey to Easter. The novelty of the season has worn off, and I find myself starting to wonder, how many more weeks until Easter? For me, it's, it's a lot like when you're about, say, five hours into a 20-hour drive. And you know, if you leave Waco, that means you're not even out of Texas yet. Uh, but you start to have this deep sinking feeling. We're a long way from home. Look at the billboards, turn on the music, get out the screens, anything to remind us that we're not there yet. The journey image is a favorite for Lent. And so today's gospel reading, not surprisingly, picks up with Jesus teaching and journeying on the way to Jerusalem. Well, along the way, someone asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, on Jesus' day, this is a, this is a hot button issue. Some rabbis taught that all Israelites will have a share in the world to come. Others that while many have been created, only few will be saved. So this is a simple question. Jesus, you know, many or few? Are we talking, you know, just Baylor people, or is this like going to include A&M people too? What are we talking about? Jesus' response, though, as you would expect, doesn't uh, address that question. The gate is narrow, he says. Only a few find it. Many will be looking looking outside, looking in, with the door locked and the master saying, I don't know where you came from. So you can imagine the guy asking the question, so just a few we're talking here, right? Then Jesus goes a very different direction. He says, people are piling in from east and west, north and south, people all over feasting with the patriarchs and prophets. So so lots of people then. One begins to think, though, that this is not a question about quantity. This isn't a question about the number of people who are getting in. This seems to be a question about geography, though a kind of spiritual geography. Right? The master repeats this phrase twice. I don't know where you've come from. I'm sorry if that bothers you that it ends in a preposition, uh, but, you know, God wrote it that way, so English majors, just, just deal with it. No, this is a question, though. There's something else going on here. Jesus also doesn't allow you to just talk about salvation. He turns this in from a, a third-person discourse to a second person. Strive to enter the narrow door. What does this word strive mean. Strive is the the language of athletics, of competition. 
The Greek word is agonizomai, where we get words like agonize or agony. In ancient Greece, the Olympic Games were literally the Greek agones, the Greek, uh, the, the Olympic agonies. It means to battle, to struggle, a fight. This is the, this is the word St. Paul uses when he, when he tells Christians, uh, when he compares them to athletes who strive for an imperishable crown, or when he encourages Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. So Jesus calls us here, clearly, to, to strive, to contend, to enter the narrow door. And it's a difficult fight. But what is this narrow door, this narrow gate? Why do we struggle to enter into it? Does it mean that salvation is only for the overachievers, the perfectionists, uh, the, the Enneagram ones? You know, that sounds more like hell to me. But anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Andrea. <laughs> no. The struggle is this. The gate is this. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham is our our example here. He has faith in God and it is counted righteousness. Faith makes the gate narrow. But it's also the way that everyone, no matter where you're from, north, east, south, or west, can come in. For Jesus' first hearers, this was a question about Sabbath and circumcision and food laws. The gate is now open, though not on that basis. It's not about gender or ethnicity or class. It's not about how nice you are, how well-behaved your children are. The narrow door is this, faith in Jesus Christ. But if that's true, why the fight? What's the struggle about? Right, that seems like an easier uh, door, not a harder one. What's the struggle? Well, the struggle is this. While the gate is open to anyone, it demands everything. The gospel isn't the message of cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls us. Jesus bids us come and die. The narrow gate of faith is open to everyone, but demands everything. You could say the narrow gate is shaped like a cross. Demands our comfort, security, our family, even our very lives. But most of all, the narrow gate of faith makes us strangers and pilgrims in the world. It makes the world say, I don't know where you've come from. This is what Abraham's faith yields, is it not? We see in this, this remarkable uh, mystical vision that Abraham has that he's promised that uh, when he's asked, you know, how do I know? How do I know that this word is true? He says his promise, you, you can spend your time reading this, this amazing <laughs> section of Genesis. The promise is that your descendants will be sojourners in a foreign land. That's part of the promise. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, by faith Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, living in tents. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
Abraham's children are going to be pilgrims in the world. Hebrews describes it, it says, people who talk like this are clear that they're, they're not seeking an earthly homeland. They desire a better country, a heavenly country. This is too what St. Paul means when he says that the Christian's citizenship is in heaven. The language of faith isn't just about our personal opinions about spiritual issues. It's about allegiance. It's about loyalty. It's about citizenship. The political language is only partly metaphorical. The Christian's true homeland is indeed elsewhere, a foreign country. The second century, the, the famous epistle to Diognetus put it, put it very well. It says, Christians aren't distinguished from the rest of the human race by country, language, or custom. They live in their own country, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens, but they endure everything as foreigners. To say that your citizenship is in heaven, though, isn't just a pious sentiment. It comes with a death warrant. We should expect to hear the same thing that Jesus did. Herod is trying to kill you. Why? Because when your citizenship is in heaven, earthly powers get nervous. The Herods of the world lose their grip on you. They can't threaten to take away your material comforts. They can't even threaten you with death. When you make known your heavenly citizenship, Herod's power is realized as a sham or as at best borrowed capital. He becomes a fox hissing in the face of the Lion of Judah. It's comical. So again, what are we striving for? What's the agony of faith that enters the narrow gate? We struggle against the perpetual temptation to set our minds, as Paul says, on earthly things, to forget our true homeland, to assume this world is all there is. C.S. Lewis once said that our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. And he means more than just education as in Baylor or wherever. What does this look like? What does it look like to be trained to have our minds fixed on earth? There's lots of ways, I think, but a recent one that came to mind was um, a study I read about religious parenting in America by the Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith. And they did this in-depth study of highly religious parents, different faith traditions, but all very devout. And one of the things that they overwhelmingly concluded was that the primary goal for parents, you know, despite what your, your priests and stuff tell you, for most parents, the goal of teaching children faith is to serve as what the, this Christian Smith calls a this-worldly resource. Religion, they say, is primarily a good resource for getting along well in this life, for coping, succeeding, and maintaining good relationships. In other words, we catechize our children not for eternal salvation or to pass on a sacred tradition. We teach them religion to help them be successful, well-adjusted, socially adept adults. 
Religion serves an instrumental or therapeutic purpose. This is what Lewis means when he says that we're trained to fix our minds on this world. Religion itself becomes valuable only to the extent that it serves this worldly happiness. But, Lewis says, what if we find in ourselves desires this world can't quench? Maybe it's a piece of art or music, a dream vacation or the heartache of love. Well, we can, like the fool, pursue these experiences and demand from them lasting happiness. Or, like good rationalists, we can snuff out these, these desires as childishness or nostalgia. The Christian, though, pursues neither track. Lewis helps us remember what the Christian tradition has always taught, that earthly pleasures are never meant to satisfy such desires, but only to arouse them, to suggest the real thing. This means we need not despise the creature comforts of family and food and friendship, but on the other hand, we shouldn't mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, an echo. We strive to keep alive the desire for our true country, to not let it become snowed under or turned aside. This, it seems, is what Lent calls us to. Lent is like an icon of life in the world, a sacrament of the present age. Lent pictures the earthly pilgrimage in the way that Easter images the heavenly homecoming. If the world trains us to fix our minds on earth, Lent is the labor of remembering our true country, to let ourselves ache for the beauty of that homeland, ever ancient, ever new. As the psalmist writes, one thing have I desired from the Lord, one thing to seek, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The striving of faith, then, is not a fight to achieve something, to be good Christians, whatever that means. As our collect reminds us, we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Rather, in the hunger of fasting, we remember our hunger for the bread of life. In prayer, we groan with sighs too deep for words the Spirit imparting to us a desire for something that we know not yet what. In almsgiving, we are reminded that as the liturgy teaches us, all things come from you, O Lord, and from your own have we given you. The agon of faith, then, is a summons to reality. We are pilgrims, strangers in a foreign land, While the world trains us to set our minds on earthly things to make this world an ultimate final good, the agon of Lenten faith is a call to remember the renunciation of the world we made in baptism. Lent, in other words, is a lot like that feeling you get when you're about five hours into a 20-hour drive, when the unsettling ennui of the road sets in, but instead of turning on a movie or a podcast, Lent is the invitation to wait, to let yourself ache for the beauty of home, 
And that's a good thing. For we're called to settle for nothing less than the heavenly banquet, where fellow pilgrims from north, east, south, and west hear the master say, I know where you've come from. They sit together and feast with the true king, their true family, and know at last what it means to be home. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 